This episode is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute, working with companies that recognize the need to upskill their leaders and transform their organizations. What worked yesterday won't work today, and what works today won't work tomorrow. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive, elevating leaders to succeed, and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us. Hello, I'm Maureen Metcalf, your host for Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm also the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to welcome three experts sharing their insights on navigating complexity and learning with agility, Jim Ritchie Dunham, Susie Lewis, and David Dinwiddie. Thank you for joining us. Give us just a little bit of your backgrounds before we jump into the topic of keys to the future of work. Thank you, Maureen. I'm Jim Ritchie Dunham. I live in Western Massachusetts, about an hour and a half from Boston. I run a thing called the Institute for Strategic Clarity, and I am a faculty member. I'm at Boston College teaching the business school, work with Harvard's School of Public Health, in the Center for Work, Health, and Well-Being, and very pleased to hand off to somebody who I met a long time ago in graduate school in Barcelona, where he still lives, <laughs> David Dinwiddie. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, my name is David Dinwiddie, coming in from Barcelona, where we met here at graduate school, and I'm still here many, many years later in Barcelona. And similar to Jim, I, I work in the strategy and the leadership area. So I do work as a research collaborator with the Institute for Strategic Clarity and with the Center for Creative Leadership as a senior faculty member there. And I run a consultancy business here in Barcelona on strategic leadership. And Susie, how about you? I'm Susie Lewis. I'm uh, coming in from Toulouse, Southwest France. I am the founder and managing director of my own company called Transform for Value. I am also an executive fellow of the Center for the Future of Organization at the Drucker School of Management. So as we move further into technology and how fast it moves, it's imperative that we keep ourselves relevant and that we look at the human-centered side of things. Thank you. And our conversation today is going to center around the article you wrote for the Harvard Business Review, Navigating Complexity and Learning with Agility Keys for the Future of Work. With all of the changes we're seeing around us, what are the key areas that you think our listeners really need to focus on? The challenges are many, aren't they? But certainly this concept of change, 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 and the exponential nature these days of transformation and change, we've known that in the business world for quite a while, but in the world of work, things are just you know moving so quickly. And they have, of course, the last several years uh, just transformed so quickly. Understanding the uncertainty that brings to people in their lives, in their daily lives, their work lives, and the future of work. What will that mean for people? How do we actually help people skill and reskill to meet the up and coming business challenges? And what are some of those triggers, the internal triggers that bring about this sense of uncertainty and a little bit of, gosh, what am I going to do? And what am I going to help my children do? And how are we going to evolve with this expansive, rapid growth in the technology area, bringing those two things together? And if I build on that, I, I think it's looking at the organizational systemic change. So as a leader, how do I navigate those processes? Because for me, one of the biggest shifts we're seeing is from ego to eco, I like to say. So sort of a more individual system to a more collective, collaborative system, which is more uncertain and which has things in it that we're not used to feeling or saying, like, maybe my team knows better than I do. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen in two years, although I have a strategy. 
So we need that agility and that learning agility to learn and learn and relearn, not just around the business subjects, but also the human aspects of what does that mean for the way I run and lead my team and the people that are outside my team, because we're stepping out of silos, aren't we? So it's that big collective thing. I think it's a real challenge that goes horizontally across all processes and organizational design today. Jim, what are you taking away through your lens? What is the complexity that we're dealing with, as we said? Um, how is that changing in so many different ways from the basics of even how we come together? So like we're doing right here, right now, versus just three or four years ago in our generation, at least we would assume we'd be sitting in the same room, right? And how does that change things to how are we looking at the ecosystem and the things that we're seeing that are changing dramatically are People have information on what's going on and they have immediate access to a lot of information. And for businesses, organizations, that means that they know what you're doing. So are you paying attention to them? And so that takes us further into what Susie was talking about of what is our ecosystem? What are the values of the different players in it? And whereas before it was very easy to assume that we knew for them, oh, I know what my customers need. Oh, I know what my employees need. Who cares about the community or the other pieces? Now we have to and they're paying attention and they have access to tools that help them pay attention far more. So we're starting to focus on how do we understand what their values are and how well are we doing against that and can we measure those things? And then how do we report that more transparently? When you're asking about values and they, is they the employees like our Gen Z folks who care about purpose and meaning? Is it your stakeholders, customers, partners, community partners? Who is they? That's the wonderful part about what we're getting into in this complexity is finding the ecosystem and how do you define what an ecosystem is? And people have a lot of prescriptions of, oh, these are the key stakeholders that you should pay attention to, or coming at it from the idea of what are you organizing towards? So if you don't even know what your purpose is, which it turns out most groups don't, then it doesn't really matter because you can't define an ecosystem. But if you can start to be clear on what are you organizing for, what are you trying to serve in the world? And then from there, who are the folks that have a key interest in that? Then you can start getting clear on who are these key stakeholders or these groups that we're very interested in because they have a major impact and they're paying attention. And we're not clear on what they care about because we've never asked. Right? So how do you engage with them and measure that and then work with them and with that? So then that starts to expand from what we used to think of as an organization to a corporation to sort of a supply chain to now this ecosystem of folks that are directly involved with us. Then how do you think about that? We talk about peeling back the layers of the onion. You're actually putting the layers back on the onion and building a bigger onion. <laughs> So I can give a quick example, and David and Susie have a ton too, so I'd love to hear those. Mine, for example, is a group I'm working with, a large microfinance bank. They have to be very clear in the numbers that they measure. Because they're a bank, there are regulators involved and they're investors. So it's a publicly traded company. And so they have very, very clear numbers on how well they're doing, You know how much money is out and the default rates coming in to the level of the transaction for 4 million customers kind of stuff. But then they say, but we also really care about our employees and the relationship with our customers. I said, good, so what are you measuring on that? And it turns out to be a bunch of anecdotes. So then they said, if it's just anecdotes, then you're representing a couple, and you can give a couple examples, but you're not representing what it looks like across 4 million. So then how do you start to understand what does it mean to embrace a customer base that's 4 million customers or 20,000 employees across 500 offices? So how do you start thinking about them much more seriously? In that case, we're bringing in much richer understanding like we have with the finances for the investors ability to start doing those same kinds of things with the internal experience and outputs of their customer base, of their employee base, 
of their communities where they're working and sort of the first level. And then we're starting to work also then how does that work with regulators and other systems that they want to influence that they don't have good measurement around, which I don't see as measured just to have data. It's really, where am I getting the feedback from the universe of what's actually working or not, right? So I have a story about that, but it's anecdotal only. And that's an example of a group where we're starting to say, okay, you've been doing this, this is your story, but how do we start putting more rigor to that? And I'm curious, I know, Susie, you have some mm. rich examples too. Well, I'm going to build on your story discussion because I think, you know, if you want to know if people feel included or if things are working, one good measurement is to go and ask them. And of course, that's the anecdotal sort of stories you get. But one of the bigger clients I'm working with, so 40,000 people, large retail firm, our first conversation was around how do you measure engagement? And eight months later, we're looking at training people as catalysts to build the communities because there was quite a lot of anecdotal things going on, but it wasn't being taken into account. And they weren't using the insight that that can bring them in terms of data. So we looked at organizational network analysis, semantic analysis of what was being said the most around the touch points we defined for the employee experience and what does that actually mean? Because in terms of experience, they'd only looked at their customer experience. So it was very polarized on the customer experience and the employee experience was just about, right, can we measure engagement? But the whole why around why we're measuring engagement Individual engagement, yes, but what does collective engagement look And how do we put something in there, a measurement that's meaningful? It's one of the questions I get asked the most. <laughs> how do you measure what you do? How can we measure what you do? How can we measure if we're progressing on culture change or collaboration or inclusion? So those things are really important. And we ended up having a storytelling session. That was the start and the end of the process. So stories are so important. It's like sort of data set of emotions, if you like, as Brenny Brown always says. But when you bring that together, you get something very powerful. So I think the learning that we had there was we need to look at what's in between and actually make it explicit so that we can iterate on it and they can get some measurement that's meaningful for them out of that. Beautiful. Yeah, I think one of the big challenges we're facing these days is everything becomes more interdependent across the world, across organizations and across groups of organizations. How do we deal with that interdependence, right? Something happens over here that affects something over here, something over there. And there's been quite interesting studies around professional networks and how to effectively manage your professional network to work in the ecosystem environment. And I'm thinking of a study, interesting one by Robin Dunbar from Oxford University, I believe in the neuroscience area, studying professional networks and what does a successful professional network look like and how we can actually manage that. And came up with some very interesting data. There's a psychological limit to the number of people we can actually effectively manage in a professional network, right? And this is not our Facebook networks or LinkedIn networks of thousands of people. This is the 150 people in your professional network that you actually sit down with, have a coffee with, have some exchange with, and do something with. And he found that in your core professional network, about 15 contacts you can effectively manage on an ongoing basis to actually get things done in the organization. So who we choose to bring into our core professional network that help us reach out to these ecosystems of other networks to actually get things done is so important, right? And that's so much about building relationships with the right people, helping them help us to generate relationships with people in the right ways across these different ecosystems. It's interesting because this seems very new to us these days, but I go back many, many years to one of my first management positions. So I was hired in Spain by Juan de Urquilla. Juan de Urquilla was the corporate finance guru at the time in Spain. And I thought, I'm going to work with Juan de Urquilla to learn corporate finance. On the first day of the job, he brings me and he says, David, I'm so happy you've joined the company because you know so much about finance and I know nothing about finance. <laughs> but I will teach you something more important than corporate finance. I will teach you how to be successful in your career. And this, David, is all about knowing the right people 
to get the right things done. It's about working through other people, learning what makes them tick, understanding them at the psychological level, at the cognitive level, at the personal level, making sure you know the right people who know the right people and working through them to get things done. And I think this just becomes more and more relevant, right? And making sure that we really do understand, are we connecting? Do we know those people in the networks who are at the core of the network that can help us get things done? Those people that can help bridge between different ecosystems and they can help get things done. The people that are on the periphery of the networks who oftentimes are disconnected and they're so innovative and they're doing some of the best work and oftentimes we lose track of those people, right? So kind of consciously managing who's in our professional network and how they help us reach out and understanding from a personal and interpersonal level what makes them tick and, and connecting and developing trust and developing relationship I think becomes more and more important in this digitized world, right? It needs to happen hand in hand. I think that it's sort of two pieces of the same puzzle. The image that comes to mind as you say that, because I hadn't heard it was only 15, is thinking of an airline network. And we have hub cities, Mm. and then each of those has connections, and each hub may connect to the same cities. And so if I were to plot what are my hub cities, Mm. and what, 12 to 18 probably, as you said, roughly 15, and how do I act very deliberately? Because to your point, to try to manage an ecosystem feels overwhelming to me. Even LinkedIn feels overwhelming. (laughs) Fortunately, they have an algorithm that only sends me messages from some people, fortunately or unfortunately, because I miss those then innovative peripherals. Mm -hmm. All I see is those that I've responded to. Yeah. Some interesting elements of an effective professional network is one depth, the relationship we have with people. Is it reciprocal? Can we actually count on them? And diversity. How diverse is our network? So making sure that in those relatively few relationships that we can actively manage, are we bringing in people to give us different perspectives, different experiences, different visions? And oftentimes, who do we gravitate towards? Those people that we're similar to, right? And we have to kind of actively force ourselves to think a little bit differently around that. I think building that, it is about intentionality. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding how I think, my mental model, and then understanding how other people think and work, because only then can I take enough distance from the bias, which is confirmation bias or affinity bias. The biases everybody has, because we we all have a brain, so we all have bias, and looking at how you can build systems differently. Because if I come back to what I was saying around operationalizing it within the organizational system, Relationships are the currency of systems, I agree. So what does that mean for the way you work in your team and how you create internal ecosystems, what I like to call team of teams as opposed to silos or departments? So how do I use that network and build the relationships enough for me to be able to navigate the complexity of the organizational system? Because often now you're getting communities on top of organizational design, which is natural, it's a shift, but then you've got this complexity that's sort of layered complexity because you've got people working in communities across boundaries, but the systems and the rewards and the recognitions and the processes are still sort of top to bottom vertical as opposed to horizontal. So I think that's, to come back to your first question, that's a big challenge for leaders because not only do I have to work on myself intentionally and understand who's in front of me and how they need to be managed and how I would like to be managed and that whole discussion around this is how I manage myself and others and I've still got to fit into all the processes that are not necessarily working in the same way. You're bringing in this great point, Susie, for me around what we call mindsets in our piece. Mm-hmm. I think of them as agreement structures. What is happening within our organization that supports that we can think in a certain kind of way? Mm. And what we've seen just as that movement that the two of you are describing of needing to be clear about who we're going to talk to and how we're going to engage in creating that trusting environment and that team of teams, 
is exactly when we're collapsing into just get the job done, just do your report out. And so one of the things that I think of there is what elevates the way we work. What are those structures, processes that we put in place to elevate to say curiosity is also important? And so how are we going to maintain what was implicit in what the three of you were saying of, and you got to be curious about the other human being. Now, that doesn't mean everybody, because then we're not on target, we're not on purpose, right? So then how do we define what we're orienting towards? And then who's critical to this? And let's be curious about what each other thinks. So then like David was talking about, I'm reaching out into my network to say, well, I'm pretty clear how we think, but is there a different way of approaching this? So bringing that growth mindset that Dweck has talked about, of being curious and open and having the organizational structures and processes that support us being able to do that together. What are you seeing within organizations that is structurally promoting the growth mindset? I'm seeing a lot of shifts towards more of a community mindset. So it may still be layered on the old system in inverted commas, but I'm seeing a shift and I'm seeing more explicit dialogue around what is collaboration for us? How do we collaborate? And starting to deal with what I call myths of leadership in an organization like strong leaders do it on their own. Strong leaders don't show vulnerability. Increasing pressure increases performance. So we're starting now to get what I call real discussions going to the heart of the matter around what happens when people have a lot of pressure to deliver. Who can they go and see? Building communities with a view to a learning culture. I get so many questions on how can I build a learning culture? Can you help me? And the answer to that is tell me a little bit about your culture. Tell me what's the unsaid, the said, how it works, how things are done around here is what I like to call it. So, but I'm seeing a shift in that as well as training, we're also now getting on the job coaches within organizations as part of the employees of an organization with a view to in-housing these skills. So I'm seeing that shift more and more and moving to flatter structures, which is a whole other discussion, but I'm seeing the shift of them actually looking at the, the org chart going, hmm, okay. How can we fit this in? I've seen a very interesting, two interesting major shifts over the last five years or so. One, post-COVID, when for many of my clients, growth coming out of the pandemic was just exponential. They couldn't deal with the growth, right? And at the time, we were speaking about growth and fixed mindsets. And the concept itself landed pretty well, right? Okay, we need to have a growth mindset because we're in the growth mode. We're at a point in our business cycle that, of course, we need to be looking for new and different ways of doing things. And any challenge is a way to come up with something new. And people were getting on board with that fairly easily and realizing that we couldn't get stuck in the we can't do attitude. And now... That's not the case. You know, we went through that exponential growth and things are tapering off. And there was so much pent up demand at the time that's not there anymore. And so I'm seeing a major shift now of going more into consolidation mode from a strategy perspective and hearing from people that not long ago, it was all about, all right, how do we grow the business now? Well, we can't possibly do this. We can't possibly continue to deliver. You know, we can't meet those challenges. Hmm. And we're starting to say, all right, stop. Let's go back to the growth mindset. What needs to happen so that this can happen? and being you know, forced into practicing the growth mindset as opposed to speaking about the growth mindset. What I'm seeing from a structural perspective is, of course, now it's, it's about doing the same or more with less. It's about finding new and innovative ways of doing things. And we're seeing who really did adopt that growth mindset and who's still struggling with it. And I do see leaders much more prepared these days to take the time to understand the fears that are coming up for people and give them a bit of time to go through the process of realizing we do need to innovate in new and different ways these days. But I think the market's kind of driving us towards living this as opposed to speaking about it. David, there was something that I think you were working on around agile teams, right? So thinking about how teams can be in a more rapid learning process and 
And what were some of those capacities that they needed to be able to work better at asking questions, going and trying something and getting the feedback and adjusting? Yeah. So and actually I learned a lot from Susie about this, the, the whole design thinking mindset. And maybe I'll throw that over to Susie to help people thinking out of the box, doing rapid prototyping, coming up with those minimum viable products. But Susie's the real expert in that area. So I'm going to throw it over to you, Susie. I use design thinking a lot and the cognitive processes behind design thinking to spark exactly what we're talking about, a different space for people and a different way of thinking. Because it's right, we're being pushed and business is being pushed into that space because competitive advantage and competition is getting more and more complicated and complex. Agile teams, my starting point is always the agile mindset. So if I take Robert Keegan's work around, you know, technical challenges and adaptive challenges, we are now in the world of adaptive challenges, which is what managing complexity is about. So agile teams is around understanding what collaboration means for them, getting them to look at different processes and trying it out. So divergence of ideas, convergence of ideas and a prototypable solution. And it doesn't matter if it's not the final solution and it doesn't matter if it's not perfect. That's what we're testing. And of course, if you diverge ideas like that, you can go and get the outlier voices from the edges of the systems or the team or the community, which is, as we've already said, where a lot of different ideas lie. So it's about really bringing all ideas to the table. And that sounds simple. And it is simple if I put it on a piece of paper, but it's quite hard to enact because organizational culture is what it is and people are not at the same level of maturity. So yeah, so that discussion of what model would work for you, that's the big thing. And sprinting on a minimum viable environment. What's the benefits? Which resources do you need? What would be your first action? What measure are you going to take? Say, yes, this MVE is viable and we will build on that. So this type of process is slower mentally than just delivering, 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 delivering. And that's different from what they used to. And Susie, you were just implying that we have to also be thinking about the culture that does that, right? Because that could very easily become very you go do yeah, <laughs> and bring back and I'll understand that. But what you're pointing at is that psychological safety, the go experiment, the try, the curiosity, respect, all that technical sounding stuff works best when the culture, the psychological, sociological culture is there also. So maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Absolutely. And it reminds me of an anecdote of a client I had where we were discussing the transformation strategy and the human dimension of the transformation strategy. And he said, I'm really bought into this. Come and tell me when it's finished. Okay. Anecdotally, it's interesting to see just how removed he felt from that. Yeah. Because I think to come back to, you know, psychological safety also needs to be role modeled from the top if it's going to be a cultural shift. So it's so important that people feel that they can bring their whole selves to work, their best ideas without fear of reprisal, and that that permission is given in the group, whether it's a team or a board or an XCOM or a community. You know, if you look at the four stages from Timothy Clark, that they have that safety, that safety to be included, that safety to learn, because everybody has a need to learn and grow, that safety to contribute. So I can put my ideas on the table. My team will step back so that I can do that. And to challenge, my team will also step back so that I can challenge the status quo. So I think that's really important. And it's not just on a PowerPoint slide, because often I see it on a slide. Mm -hmm. So this is where I'm back to operationalization. And the design thinking methods and things like that can create a different environment quite quickly. I think the question then is, how do you plug that back into the existing culture? I always find it interesting what Amy Edmonton says around psychological safety. One of the things she encourages as we're trying to build psychological safety in our teams is to admit our own fallibility, right? She says to, to model this and say, I make mistakes. 
I don't know everything and let people see that and give this sense of, of comfort, right? That we all are here to contribute. We are always going to get it right. And oftentimes we won't get it right and that's okay. And, you know, the sense of actually me modeling psychological safety by admitting this fallibility and giving some examples, right? Of, of when I actually make mistakes and that permission sort of gives the permission to people to speak up as opposed to the fear of if I speak up, I'm going to be seen as, you know, as being unintelligent or not connected or not smart enough, right? So that's, uh, I think, one of those interesting tips hmm. that we can take on board as leaders. You know, it comes back to a lot of what I learned studying with Jim is the agreements we've made. And it seems like whether we consciously or unconsciously made them during the pandemic because we were on Zooms from home, you know, you saw dogs and cats and kids and some people saw things they didn't want to see. But we had a level of authenticity and transparency that entered into our agreement collective. Hmm. It seems like even though we may be working in the office, we've crossed an invisible line that we expect a level of transparency and authenticity. We expect our humans to be more human. Our machines are saying they love us. Our humans have to be human. <laughs> That's the differentiator. One of the things that we're starting to work on is how consistent are we at doing that across the organization? We know people know how to copy paste what they've heard. They said, oh, yeah, we're a learning organization. Yeah, sure, we do agile. I said, okay, well, let's look what you're actually doing. But people know how to use the language, and they know when the boss shows up how to act. Not everybody does, but many know how to. So the question is, how consistent is that across your organization? And that's where we're starting to use some of these ideas of measurement, both the subjective inner experience that people are having as well as the objective data that we can get from their activities, their outputs, and starting to see how consistent are we across the organization. Now, here I give three quick examples because it could say, well, that's really for big organizations. But, you know, we were working with a textile mill, which I've written a lot about, and there was a couple hundred of employees. But a couple hundred of employees with those teams that David was talking about is dozens of teams. And a lot of people are on multiple teams. Right? And then they're communicating or in flow with each other. So what do each of those teams look like? What does the culture of those teams look like across the organization when the bosses aren't there? I mean, how consistent are we? We did that also within a large, a large finance company in software engineering for a large bank. And there we had a thousand employees that we were working across. So hundreds of teams. How does it look like in the team? So is it that we have a couple of cases where people do this agile thing? in the curiosity like Susie was talking about really well, or is it consistent across our whole organization? Because the thing that scares me the most when I think about strategies is that, you know, I think I know what I think, and I think I know what you think, but the decisions are made by every single person here in our organization every day that affect the whole company. And I have no clue how they actually understand the world and what they're actually doing when I'm not around. They're making decisions. Do we know what culture is behind that? And so we're starting to use these measures, and they've done a lot of that work at CCL over the years. You know, what are the kinds of things that we want to measure about individuals and teams to know what experience they're actually having and that they'll give us credible data and that we can start to match that with outputs and outcomes, right? To start saying, look, when in your organization people do what you're talking about in the C-suite well, like the stuff that we've been talking about, then you get these kinds of results. And when they don't, then they don't. And do you have a way of knowing what's happening throughout your organization, not just in the couple of pockets that you happen to know about? 
Just building on that, Jim. So at the Center for Creative Leadership, we've done many studies in that area. But one that comes to mind for me, a study called Leadership Across Differences. We're looking at organizations around the world going through internationalization processes and, and sort of going through globalization process, looking for the superior performers and the underperformers. And what are some of the lessons that we learned there? And a lot of those topics are coming up right now. And I do think there's something that's important for us to gather data around. As you're speaking, Jim, how do we gather data up, down, and around the organization to measure one the real degree of direction, clear sense of direction that people have in the organization, not just at the executive level, but down to all the different levels. And we can measure that in organizations. Alignment, how well we are aligned, as Susie was speaking, across different silos in the organization, different business units of the organization, different geographies of the organization. What's that alignment look like? And we can capture clear data about that. And then the third factor is commitment. The extent to which people are committed, not just to my job and my department, but the overall organization of transformation in the organization. And we see clearly there's a clear statistical correlation between these three factors, direction, alignment, and commitment, and performance results. And so we need to pay attention to that, especially in these times of transition, right? If I'm working with companies in the automotive industry going through major transformation at the moment, right? And what does that mean? It means really running two businesses at the same time, the business of today that we know we have to deliver on. And we have to be very clear about delivering on that business because it fuels the business of the future, which we don't even know what that looks like yet, right? What, what does mobility look like? And, you know, these paradoxes that we need to manage as we're doing that. And as we're managing paradoxes, helping people see there is a clear direction that we need to line up with. We are aligning across the organization and we are committed to that. And we need to pay very close attention to that because as we transform, we tend to start to lose one or two of those elements. And if we don't have all three, the results just don't come. And I think it's two different cultures, isn't it? Like you say, business is usual in innovation. But how do you marry those cultures at the same time? Yeah. They will always be uncomfortable because complexity is. And I think one of the messages for everyone I talk to leaders a lot about is you're probably never going to feel comfortable. You just get more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because that's what managing complexity is about. But it brings up two major leadership skills for me that are crucial and will get more and more crucial. One is sense-making. Mm -hmm. So building on what Jim and David said, sense-making and constantly sense-making because it moves, it's emergent, and also critical systems thinking. So you know, silos in an organization can also be silos in one's mind and often they are. So this whole, I'm going to call it zoom in, zoom out, because that's what I call it a lot when we work on it, is so critical of connecting the dots, connecting people, connecting business value, business advantage, end-to-end -end processes. Everything needs this critical systems lens. And I think it's really important because today, all the decision makers in an organization are not necessarily sat at the top. And that's a good thing. And, and you know, organizations are evolving. So you get key influences at another level of the organization that are also doing sense-making and decision-taking. So there needs to be transparency around that. And I think sense-making and critical systems thinking are key for leaders today. Earlier in our conversation, David talked about storytelling and how I use data to change my story. I assume that's connected to sense-making. Yeah, absolutely. So if I take a step back from sense making and look at sort of my critical systems lens. Okay, what do we have in this ecosystem? What's missing? Where do we need to go? And what's our purpose? If I split it up like that, that's quite a complex, convoluted discussion, as opposed to saying, this is the direction we want to take. There's 10 of us around this table. Are we all agreed? Yes. Okay. We'll cascade that down to the rest of the organization. Please translate this strategy into tactics. Whereas today, one, we can't afford to do that because the world doesn't work in the same way. And, you know, Jim said information is flowing very differently today. People are giving more and more of their ideas and there are, there's more and more emerging spaces in organizations, which I think is a good thing. 
So, but the sense making therefore needs to happen habitually and particularly at the top because people will still look at the top as to well, what decisions are being made and why are they being made? Because people will walk away from, particularly after COVID, they will walk away from things now and say, that isn't for me. And that it's not, that's not what I'm looking for. That I don't see the sense in what's going on there. So in terms of talent retention and talent attraction, it's really important. So the sense making looks more complicated and happens more often at more numerous levels of the organization, if I had to put it in a nutshell. Thank you. David and Jim, what are you seeing with regard to sense-making in an environment that's moving more fast and more complex? I'm just thinking this through with an organization I'm working with as we speak in the the biomedical industry that's going through major transformation. And sense-making typically has been about, all right, what's my area supposed to do? How do I analyze that? How do I break that down into jobs that make sense, activities that make sense, and you know help people understand what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be working? And now what I'm seeing sense-making is more about, wow, all right, how do we think about what something might look like in the future, and how do we build some sort of work stream around something which we don't even know what that looks like yet, right? And trying to get our head around not so much how do we understand what we have and make it work, but how do we start to understand something that may occur in the future, And how can we start to generate some ideas and some prototypes around that, make some sense out of that, so then we can latch on to where we will be going in the future and how we will make things work in the future. So it's very much this sort of paradox or polarity of what makes sense for what we're doing today. It's an elevated level of strategic thinking, I think is what I want to say. To make sense of what the future looks like, we need to have a much more elevated sense. It's what we call vertical development. We start to develop people, not so much in helping them understand a little bit better what they do and give them more information and more tools, but open the mind. You know, what will the glass look like in the future as opposed to how do we fill that glass with something today? And I think that's one of the shifts that we're seeing. And it does require some really advanced leadership growth and some mindset shifts and getting comfortable operating at levels which are you know much more ambiguous than they used to be. And I think sense-making is about that. It's about a little bit going from saying, yes, complexity, and how will we make some clarity out of that complexity and getting people's input in that. You know, It's not so much the leader who tells us now how we get things done. It's bringing people together and starting to figure out together where we're going. You use the word vertical development because that phrase is so crucial in what you just said. Can you give us the quick overview? Because I know we could spend the next three hours talking about vertical development. Yeah, I mean, so vertical development in a nutshell, and jump in, Jim, Susie, it's sort of this comparison between horizontal development is studying a little bit more to get more knowledge and more skills to do your job better and move on to the next job. Vertical development is how I elevate my mindset and how I start to be able to see the horizon and beyond the horizon and understanding the interconnectedness between things and being able to see things from much different perspectives. And we need both. The interesting thing here, when we speak about vertical development, we do need to help people open their minds and see things in much broader, strategic, future-oriented ways. And as managers, we need to be operating at different levels, right? With vertical development, we need to sort of build our capacity to do that. And at the same time, be able to come down to other levels of thinking to make sure that we're helping people get things done and kind of bringing them along in raising their perceptions and their awareness. That's kind of the concept of vertical development. Jim, would you talk about the paper about how you integrate both people who are vertically developed with people who are horizontally developed into teams, there are a limited number of people who are highly vertically developed. There are also a limited number of people who are strongly horizontally developed in their field. So how do we curate the teams to ensure that we have all of the experience we need in the room and come out with a strong outcome? 
Yeah, you're referring to a piece that we did a few years ago, thinking about if we know what our purpose is and people are connected to our purpose, then who do we need to have in the room to be able to help us work towards that? So I think of that as what are the required voices in this room or perspectives? And how do we as a group start to listen to that? And a very simple example for me that I was actually in was we were trying to decide within a textile mill whether we could make money selling this sock. And I said, good. So then who do we need to have in that conversation? And working through that, we said, well, we need to know how much it's going to cost. So we need to have the guy that's designing it. And it's a new product. So he'll have to sort of play with scenarios. Then we have to have the person who's going to sell it so that they know what we could get for that out in the marketplace. And then we have to have the accountant who can help us understand, can we make a profit with those costs and those revenues and everything else that's happening? So the point is, if we don't have those three perspectives in the room, then we're not having a conversation. And if the marketing person comes and says, well, I'll tell you what the accountant would said, wrong answer, because that's why you're not the accountant. And maybe you do understand those things, but not in this context, not today. And the accountant could say, well, this is what I think we could sell, but you're not the one in touch with the sales and the customers. So we have to have all three perspectives. So likewise, when we think about what we called co-hosting is not only the horizontal knowledge, which is obviously critical that I just mentioned, but we can also start to look at vertical development of people who are able to see levels of subtlety and wholeness within the system that people who might be more technically competent but didn't have that couldn't, as an example. And so inviting into the room and being clear, it's helpful when we have people that are at higher stages of vertical development. But it's also helpful when we have people who are here because of their technical knowledge, because they've spent a lot of time in this area. Or they're people that the process works far better when they're here. They're very good at process kinds of things. And then we also had in that work, we're talking about states of awareness in addition to stages of development. There are people who are just very capable at understanding the subtle things that are happening in the room, whether it's their technical competence or not. But they're like, oh, wait a second, you just did that eyebrow furrow thing. Or I could feel that something shifted in you. And others of us are working at a much more gross level. So bringing in people who can work at those different states of awareness, as well as those stages, the vertical development stages, as well as, you know, how much knowledge do you have about this area that we're working in? And bringing in all of them, we also had what we mentioned a little earlier ago, that curiosity or mindfulness. How open are we to noticing new things? So I'm not stuck in that stable mindset or static mindset, rather looking for, well, what did you just say that changed? Or is that new or different? So anyway, so we had started to look at vertical development as a key benefit that you could bring in, but not required of everybody, but a definite benefit that you could build in so that you could go to that person in the conversation and say, well, once you heard those three perspectives of the accountant, the marketer, and the developer, what do you see we're missing? And what did you feel was going on? So we could bring some of those other perspectives as well. I'm thinking about how do we build those into an org structure where we started earlier, like you're our chief highly developed person in the organization. Like there's no job title for that. <laughs> it does take a little bit of rethinking. Well, it does. But this is where that measurement stuff, I think, has come really handy. So where we've been doing that, I've just say, OK, well, when Susie was talking about earlier, those communications amongst teams, right, that fabric that connects the network. Who are those people and what are they bringing to the game? So are they there because they have very senior titles? Are they there because they have very senior knowledge, a lot of experience in that one area? Or are they there because they're able to invite the space that people will feel very safe in and bring far more of their wisdom in? 
And what we started to discover just through applying some of these simple measurement systems, I say simple, but robust measurement systems is to say, wait a second, we have in three of these key liaisons between groups. So one group that's like looking at operations and costing versus marketing um, across the whole organization. The person that was there was actually the person with the lowest on the vertical development. And that person was there because they had the most senior title in the group and they wanted to be the liaison, but they were the one who invited the least of curiosity and this ability to see in others what they needed to contribute. Whereas there was a more junior person that was in both of those groups who was really good at saying, wait a second, David, you have something to contribute here. Not wait a second, Susie, we need to bring in this part so they could orchestrate that from a higher vertical development perspective. David. No, it's interesting because they, we oftentimes talk about the orchestrators, right? Those people that have had the opportunity to develop themselves vertically, become the orchestrators. And, and one thing the research has shown us very clearly at, at CCL is how to develop vertical development. And a large part of that is around what we call heat experiences, having a heat experience, you know, taking the knowledge that you've built already, your studies, your experience, and being thrown into something which throws you so far out of your comfort zone that you have to operate at a different level. I think of the first time I was sent after having studied corporate finance and worked in corporate finance, and the first time I was sent to Peru to negotiate my first large merger and acquisition deal and corporate finance package totally out of my, my comfort zone, right? I, I knew the theory, but I hadn't actually done that on my own. And all of a sudden, being forced to operate eye to eye, go head to head, face to face uh, with people that had a much higher level of, of thinking and experience than myself, right? And you start to develop that through these heat experiences, being exposed and adopting that growth mindset. Saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to learn to do this and I can learn to do anything better and I'll get there. Little by little, we start to expand that sense of thinking. And those heat experiences are really at the core of this development towards a more strategic, interconnected, interdependent way of thinking, I think. Oh, that brings in then the importance of sense-making. When I have the heat experience, then I need to be supported so that I make sense of it from an elevated perspective rather than a, oh crap, I don't know what I'm doing perspective. Yeah. And an important part of that sense-making at times, we've seen it in adult learning, 70% of our growth comes through these heat experiences, right? 20% of it more or less comes from having the right network of people around us that help us make sense of things, right? And help us challenge things and having their colleagues, your coaches, your mentors around that can help you make some sense and then challenge you to take the next step and hold you accountable to taking that next step is so important in that process. But you come to the foundational block again of mental models. I can step back from my assumptions and therefore I can learn from that space. And of course, when you're in the situation you just described, that heat experience, you're like, you just revert to type, of course you do. So I think having that capability to say, I'm going to have a growth mindset, I'm going to step back and I'm just going to let it emerge and I'm going to have an experience and then I can look at what worked and what didn't work, I think is, is really important. It's the foundational block for me of managing complexities, understanding your mental models and being able to make sense of them. And then you can make sense of what's happening around you. I really like that because one of the things that we have talked about and each of us is doing is that assessment piece. And it's self-assessment and organizational assessment, knowing what that next level looks like as described by practitioners at that next level of content knowledge horizontally, or they've moved from being sort of an apprentice to a fellow craft, to a craftsman, to an expert or master. So we know what that looks like. We know what the vertical development stages look like as described by people living from there. And that self-assessment and then the group assessment lets us know who's really ready there versus the title that they have. So I think, of David, you were giving the example, but how old were you when that happened? The example in Peru. Yes. Oh, I was probably 20, 27 years old, something like that. You know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
So we can look and say, well, you know, obviously that person needs to be the 55-year-old who just had their first course at the Kennedy School, and therefore, you know, they know more than the rest of us. Or you say, do we know what to look for in our organization and say, wait a second, through that this assessment, and you can do it as a self-assessment or a group assessment or a more formal assessment like I was talking about, but we can start to identify people that have those capacities that he said, well, we didn't think that the person who was best at opening that space on a consistent basis so that the whole team showed up and got through it and got to something was our 27-year-old and not our 50-year-old. And I got called to the carpet on this when I was doing a big exercise down in Guatemala quite a few years ago with CARE. We had done a whole strategy thing with multiple stakeholders, 20-something stakeholders from across society um, in a very difficult context. You know, so the guerrillas versus the army versus the president's office versus the medical, all that kind of stuff. And we'd come up with this story for how to alleviate poverty from their perspective and their country in Guatemala. And so we were getting ready to take it out into the field and go visit a bunch of the internal parts of this, they call it the interior of the country, um, different offices. And so we were practicing storytelling. How are you going to tell this story and invite people into it? And at break, um, this very young person came to me and said, why did you only pick the bosses? I said, that's a really great question. He said, because these are the people that I've been working with and know, and that I've seen because I know them, I've seen them tell the story. He said, well, I'd like to try. And he was a junior accounting person, and he was there because he was part of staff. And they said, great. Well, you know, we have an opportunity. We've created one of these heat moments, but it's risk-free inside. And us try it. And he was fantastic. I mean, there's no way hierarchically we would have ever known he existed, but he had a self-awareness to say, and so he ended up being one of our key presenters as we went around the interior presenting all over the country and inviting folks in because he was really good at that. So that's my point is that through self-assessment techniques of knowing what that next level looks like, we can also start to ask people and find out who within our communities have these capacities or would like to develop them. Because it probably isn't just the people with very senior titles. Definitely not. There's a lot of missed potential in organizations because we're so stuck and rigid on what we're looking for. I think when you do that, it's always a treasure hunt for me. You find so much that you didn't think was there that you just would never have found unless you'd asked the curious question. And I'm seeing that with my students at Boston College right now who, you know, they're low to mid-level managers in big organizations in, in Boston banks and Amazon and places like that. They have some of these capacities. And when they go into the room now and have a boss or a boss's boss running the meeting who's far less competent than they are, then that leads to turnover problems. I said, I'm not going to put myself up because it's my boss's boss, but I know how to do this far better than they do, and I'm not being asked. And I have less and less tolerance for putting up with that because I know what better looks like. Well, then as we assess and start to understand that playing field, when we see that that junior person or people have the capacity beyond what their bosses do, we have the opportunity to then back to our restructuring and creating interesting teams and interesting opportunities for our junior in title, but more senior in competence folks to really contribute in ways that are meaningful. And we don't have to destroy the infrastructure that people are comfortable with. Some really interesting things come to mind when you speak about that. We have the infrastructure that we're comfortable with. We've, you know, the organizational charts that we all understand and we see where people sit. And we recently did an interesting study with an oil and gas company, very large organization, where we took the organizational structure and then a survey went out across the organization. Simple questions. Who do you go to for information and to get things done? 
who do you go to? And we did an organizational network analysis about that. And it was fascinating to see who do people actually go to for information to get things done invariably are not people in senior leadership positions. They're the people that know how to get information and they know the people to help them get things done. And it's just fascinating. And that's okay. Of course, we need to operate with organizational structures to a certain sense. It kind of helps us understand kind of what things look like. But it's, you know, so much more important when we have important projects on, when we're working on innovation, when we're working on cross-functional type things. I would always think about, all right, not who's the other senior manager I'm going to go to to speak to? Who are the people in the teams, in the different areas that we need to go to because we know they're the ones that are going to contribute and help get things done? And so when I'm working with young people in the MBA programs, one, how do you become one of those people? How do you actually, as a young person in your career, take the time and make the connections to develop your own network in the organization and manage that network? How do we identify those people, right? How do we identify the people that get things done? And how do we potentiate them? How do we you know, help them grow in the organization? Another thing, they can also become gatekeepers and bottlenecks in the organization, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we, as an organization, manage those people that know how to get the information and how to get things done? It's tricky, trickier and trickier these days. But it's interesting because there's always a question I ask, tell me who the key influences are in your network. Yeah. You know, not necessarily people who get things done, but who are the key influences? Who does everyone follow? And if you want to get traction, where do you go? Yeah. Because it's not often at the top. It's people who are dotted around the team of teams discussion we've just had, do things under the radar. And once it's solid, they'll take it up to the top and say, look at this, what do you think? There's something tangible behind it. And I think HR thinking about what those type of processes could look like as part of the way we do things around here would be very, very beneficial mm -hmm. in terms of organizational structure, but also leadership development. Let's use that as the pivot to our final point in your paper, moving from scarcity to abundance. <laughs> so let's talk about what that means, because I, I want to make sure we move out of what can be the kind of new age view of scarcity and abundance to a hardcore scientific mindset that is crucial, especially as we are navigating complexity and anxiety. Circling back to where David started with people are uncomfortable and some are just downright scared that they're going to be able to keep their job or have a good job and pay the house payment and put the kids through college before they retire. Yeah, there's a lot of research that's been going on, um, including ours, around that scarcity mindset that you were just talking about. So when people perceive themselves as poor or scarce, what does it biologically do to you, right? And it collapses a whole bunch of your capacity for sense-making and all the hormones and everything that start circulating make it very difficult to pay attention to a more broad perspective. So there's something actually happening that collapses us and the psychology that goes with that. There's also a very much a scarcity mindset of how you look at what we talked about, those agreements, right? And what's actually happening. And in that scarcity mindset, what we've been able to show is it's very disengaging because it's only looking at the cogs in the machine of getting the machine done. It's only about efficiency. It's only about outcomes or the outputs. And it's very focused on what's available right here, right now. And the way we got there technically, mathematically, was, and this came out from Alfred Marshall and Company in the late 1800s, was they literally integrated out. They took the equation for what is movement of people learning and doing things in the world look like in their interactions. And they said, let's take out potential possibilities. Let's integrate that out so it's not in the equation. 
And then let's integrate out movement and change over time so we can look at how much is available right here, right now. And we know that as the price quantity curve or supply demand. And that's how they were able to determine how much X of anything, how much of this is here right now. Today, we call that an output, right? But he said, if I want to know exactly how much output is right here, right now, I have to get rid of changing over time and I have to get rid of or integrate out the possibilities and potential. And so the problem becomes is that we know as humans, we're always thinking over time because everything's always changing. And we're always thinking over possibilities because we're thinking and we're seeing things. But we shut all that down in our conversations when what we call scarcity-based, that it's only about the output right now. Now we can get sophisticated in language, but we're really only focused on output. And maybe what you know about output but we're only bringing your proven capacities from the past and the output that we can generate right now is all that's in that conversation. And what we're expanding is to say, or you could bring in the changing, the verbing of stuff over time and say, okay, but how is that changing? What are we learning? How are we developing capacities and relationships? How are those shifting? How are you today versus where you were today? But that brings a whole other level of understanding that's very human, but we exclude it from the way we do most of our organizational meetings and measurement systems. And then you could even bring in that other higher level. Uh, and what did you see? Because I know Susie's not the same person that she was a month ago last time we talked because life has happened, right? So then you must be seeing something new, but am I going to shut that out, take it out of the equation, or am I going to let it live within the conversation? And what we've discovered We've been very fortunate to have a lot of people take our survey looking at this, like 132,000 now across 126 countries. I'm describing their experience of this and say, what happens when you come from that state, those, that higher level? And they start describing abundance, meaning that there's infinite human potential. It doesn't mean there's garbage and leftover and waste. It means abundance and we can be as creative as we want. We can be very innovative because it's all here. And are we going to take advantage of that? Are we going to collapse all of that out? It's much more engaging when we're in that space versus very disengaging, which we know most of the world is very disengaged. And we know the world is very lonely on a large scale right now versus when they're in that more abundant space. So all of these things that we've talked about, the measurement systems, the structures, the processes, the agile, dealing with that complexity, and whether we're dealing with today's business or tomorrow's business, we still have to be, as you all are describing, of the curiosity that respect, that sense of safety and exploring what we are learning together. So that's what we call moving from that scarcity mindset that takes all of that out of our structures and processes, our mindsets and the biological effect of that to more of this abundance perspective of there is human potential. I believe I have human beings with me, not cogs in the machine. You're not a replaceable part. You're a person, right? And what are you bringing today? And what can we sense in that today? And so that mindset is a very dramatic shift and has a major impact on how we engage and interact and flourish as human beings. But Jim, you mentioned flourishing. Can you share a little bit about the flourishing initiative? And certainly David and Susie jump into how you're all contributing to this really important program. Flourishing, the way we're defining that is whole human well-being. And by that, we mean that you're a physical and mental and social and spiritual being, meaning you have meaning and purpose in life that drives you also. And so can we agree on some way to measure across all of those dimensions and not just whether you have more money or whether you're just happier or whether you just are more educated, but can we start to pull all of that together? And so we have a measure or set of measures we're using calling flourishing. And the we is the Harvard Human Flourishing Initiative. 
there are two exciting things that folks can learn more about. One is leadership for flourishing. So how does leadership within organizations influence the flourishing of their ecosystem? And how does flourishing influence the leader themselves? So a lot of these moves that we've talked about, how do they become more flourishing themselves? And how does that influence the flourishing that they can bring in their larger ecosystem, their self, their teams, their organizations, and the larger ecosystems? We're fortunate we just got a book accepted with Oxford University Press is going to publish our book on leadership for flourishing, and we're putting that together. So that's very exciting. The other is this global flourishing study, which is kicked off this past year, and we're gathering the data right now, interviewing 240,000 people in 22 countries every year for the next five years to start looking at what are the factors in their lives that influence their flourishing and how do those change over time. And that's in partnership between Harvard and Baylor with Gallup. And so Gallup is out doing all of those interviews with their whole apparatus and gathering those data with that panel of 240,000 people. And we also have their childhood data, where they are now, and then interviews every five years, looking at what are the different factors influencing their experience of flourishing and how do we look across a lot of different cultures. So that represents statistically about 60, 70% of humanity. And not surprising, as has been in this conversation, within our own countries, there's a lot of variety of how that shows up in humans. And across cultures, um, that also has a lot of variety. What is it that's sort of common to all humans and what's different in different cultures about how flourishing shows up? Within our organizations, we want healthier. And what do we mean by healthier? People can express their health and beauty as individuals and as groups across our ecosystems. And can we measure whether you're better off because of that? Is the organization, is your community, your ecosystem better off because you're here within their own experience and the outputs that they're able to generate in the world? And how do you measure across that physical, mental, social, and spiritual or meaning and purpose dimensions as a consistent whole? So a lot of exciting work is happening around the globe, and those are a couple of the initiatives that we're involved with. And I think it brings us back to the importance of vertical development and the inner game of leadership because that is what is going to make that shift sustainable for me. So working to thrive as opposed to working to survive. You know, so what's running me? What are my inner assumptions? How do I step into what I call my happy place? How do I step into my more creative competencies to use the leadership circle words around? How do I come from a place of inner motivation? And that feels very different and the outcomes will be very different. So, And it'll be really interesting to see those as data sets. But I think just the inner game needs to be an open dialogue in organizations around leadership development. Thank you. You just reminded me. You're welcome. <laughs> There's so much exciting work happening. Another group that I'm part of at the Center for Work Health and Wellbeing within the School of Public Health at Harvard, we're looking at thriving from work. And what's really exciting there is in high-risk jobs or manufacturing kind of jobs, what does thriving from work look like? So it's not only the senior leadership and people in professional roles, mm. but what does this look like across the world in manufacturing facilities? Is it safe to walk to work? And do people listen to you on the manufacturing floor? So we're also doing a lot of work on that of what does thriving at work look like? And David, as we're wrapping up, please jump in. I would just say how exciting it is for me as a, an educator for so many years, having like many of us, brought in concepts of prosperity and, and abundance into teachings that we share with people and the facilitations with companies to see the Flourishing Project capturing real data and some data-driven models around this human-centric leadership, which we all know is so important in human-centric management. I'm just so excited to see kind of what's coming out of that and what will be coming out of that. And I think that's the thing to uh, keep our eye on in the future. And I think it's going to, it will resonate with, with all of us, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. This has been just a brilliant conversation and we could go on for hours and I would love to do that, but we're not the Joe Rogan show. So we, <laughs> we actually do end within an hour. I'm excited to see the research. I'm excited for listeners to get to hear this conversation and for them to pick up the threads that you have so brilliantly curated together. So thank you to our listeners. Please do like, comment, and most importantly, share this information with the people who are in your network. Those 15 and then the extended. (laughs) 